The sermon text this afternoon is from Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me and rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. These are the first five verses of Psalm 31 that Jesus quotes the fifth verse of as his last words on the cross before he dies. Each year on the Friday before Easter, we gather at three o'clock to discuss and to celebrate the death of our Savior and King. And if you are here and are not a Christian, this is probably an odd thing to you. Why would we give up our Friday afternoons and come together and sing about the death of a man 2,000 years ago? Of course, for Christians, we know that the answer is because the man who died died for us. He went to the cross on our behalf, and the man who died didn't stay dead. And so we have reason to rejoice over these things. And yet on Good Friday, we want to slow down and reflect on what Jesus has accomplished for us. And today to meditate on these words of Christ on the cross. We want to stand under the weight of these words. As we look at these, well really this one verse from Psalm 31, Jesus is going to display two primary traits of his relationship between himself and his father. We're going to see both of those through two grammatical changes he makes to Psalm 31. We're going to see first that he he has a distinct intimacy with the Father, that he is a, a fellowship that is closer than anybody else in all of creation. And then secondly, we're going to see that there's a unique trust between the Father and Son, that Jesus has total confidence in his Father to deliver him. First, we'll look at the intimacy between the Father and the Son. When, when we look at these sayings on the cross, when we come on Good Friday, we're looking at the seven things that Jesus says while he is hanging on the cross. And each year, we rotate through each of these seven sayings. This year, we are at the last of these, the final words of Christ before he breathes his last breath. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In the other six sayings, he addresses one of the other men on the cross. He addresses his mother and his brother. He addresses the crowds that are around him. And in three of the sayings, he directly speaks to God. 
The first of those is just a few verses back up in Luke 23, verse 34. This is the first of the seven sayings, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is Christ's mercy on display, that even those who are crucifying him deserve to be forgiven. The next address to God is the fourth saying, right in the middle, and we find this in Matthew 27. In an intriguing switch of language, Jesus speaks out to God and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At this moment, Jesus is taking the punishment that our sin deserves. and He doesn't even cry out to God as Father, but just my God. Jesus at this moment is absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf. He's taking the punishment that our sins deserved. And he is crying out in agony as he feels the forsakenness of his Father. And then we move forward to this seventh saying, and the language has changed back. But there's a reason that this has happened. If we read the Matthew passage, it gives us a little bit more light of the events around this fourth saying of Jesus. When, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just like in our passage in Luke, there's an uh, inexplicable darkness that's over the land. Matthew tells us there's also a, an incredibly powerful earthquake, that rocks are splitting open because the earth is shaking. The natural order is feeling the weight of and the impact of the atoning work of Christ. You can almost sort of imagine the scene in the town. Certainly there were crowds that followed Jesus to the cross, but many people wouldn't have. They'd just still be going about their day normally. And all of a sudden there's this darkness that they don't understand what's happening in the middle of the day. And then the earthquake that's shaking the ground, that rocks are splitting open. There's chaos. It's, it's fear that would be striking them, and they're running for cover probably. And yet after this fourth saying, back on the cross, back at Golgotha, things are calm and serene. Christ, after accomplishing this atoning work and absorbing the judgment of God, he says just two of his shortest sayings, I thirst and it is finished. He's gathering energy for one last saying, one last time to cry out. And in that last saying, he directs his attention back towards heaven and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is the first of the two changes we see from the original language of Psalm 31. Jesus intentionally adds, Father, at the start of his prayer. This is the intimacy that we have with God, that he, he wants the last words he says to illustrate that intimacy that he has. And this is what's fueled all of his ministry up to this point. Think of the numerous times that he sneaks away from the crowds, sneaks away from his disciples to be alone, to pray to his Father, to have one-on-one -on -one communion with his Father. Or the significance that he showed to his disciples when he taught them, this is how you pray. Pray like this, our Father. There's a, an emphasis on that familial relationship between the Father and the Son where he was feeling the forsakenness of God, that separation, that forsakenness is gone, and it will not return for all eternity. This is the intimacy that Christ has, and it's the intimacy that he has given us access to the Father as well. While on the cross, he said these words, and we read in, in our passage, the curtain tears in two. Matthew says it tears from top to bottom. 
That curtain was the separation, the physical barrier between the Holy of Holies and the temple, the place where the presence of God was, and the rest of the temple. And so when, when this barrier is constructed, it's a barrier to keep the holiness of God separate from the sinfulness of man. We looked at this just a few weeks ago in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve sin, God removes them from the garden, and he sets this cherubim, this warrior angel, at the edge of the Garden of Eden to keep Adam and Eve out. And that's for their good, because they are sinful. They can't be in the presence of a holy God without receiving the judgment of their sin. And so this barrier that God puts from the garden is the same barrier that's put in the temple. And when Christ has completed the atoning work, this barrier is gone. You can, you can almost imagine, or maybe at least I wonder, if the Israelites at this moment, as the curtain is torn, if they're afraid for their lives, is the judgment going to come on me now? Am I about to be destroyed? The, the separation that was there so that I wouldn't come into his presence in an unworthy manner, that separation, that barrier is gone. And I bet there was fear. But we know that they weren't going to be destroyed, and there's good reason for it. When Christ is on the cross and takes the punishment of our sin, it makes the curtain obsolete. There's no longer this needed physical barrier between us and the Father because Christ has paid for our sins. And so we now, through Christ, have access to come into the Father's presence. We can come boldly before the throne. This is the intimacy that Christ has is now transferred to us. We can experience the same intimacy. And we can come into God's presence now. We don't have to get on a plane and fly to Jerusalem in order to come before the holy God. This is the the presence of the Father. Not just uh, God as as though he's a distant deity, but, but our Father. This ought to be a comfort to us that as we as we think through the trials that we have in our lives and the, the suffering that we face and the loneliness and isolation that, that our sin can cause, a lot of times when we sin, we feel as though we, we have to hide ourselves from the Father's presence. We, we need to sort of make ourselves right before we come before Him. And we see this in children, right? When, when, when our daughter disobeys, she won't even make eye contact with us when we're trying to ask her why she did what she did. That's intentional. It's because she knows I've done something wrong, even as a little kid who really doesn't have a ton of awareness as to what's going on, even then we, we know, we feel this shame and the desire to hide. And yet, because of Christ, we don't need to hide. We can come before the Father because we have an advocate. We have one who goes on our behalf. And I think this is a good place for a word that we do see God as our Father, but some of us don't have an earthly Father that we look to as a good role model for this. Some of you, you might think of God revealing himself as father, and it it might kind of give you a pit in your stomach that you think, I don't want God to be like my father. Our our earthly fathers aren't always good reflections of the heavenly father, but you, you need to know that the heavenly father is altogether different than our earthly fathers. He's, he's what our earthly fathers should be. He's good and loving and kind and patient and generous to his people. And so if, if that's a barrier for you, which I think it is for many people, know that you can come to God and, and he will be the father that we all want, the, the good, perfect father. 
And this should be a reason for Christians to rejoice. It should be a reason for non-Christians to, to think through their own relationships with God. Do you think of God as your father? Do you think that the intimacy that God has designed into the world and has given you op- opportunity to have access to, do you see that as good? It is good. It's designed in a way that, that causes us to love in a deeper way. And in our relationship to the Father, it also affects the other relationships we have. We can share in that relationship and take it from vertical into horizontal, into loving one another. The second thing that we see is the, the trust that God has, or trust that the Son has for the Father. In Psalm 31, the the whole psalm reads as a prayer of a righteous person who's suffering. He's surrounded by his enemies and he's being persecuted, but he trusts that there's a a time that God will deliver him from these enemies. It's a hope in a deliverance. But why did Jesus choose verse five? He could have chosen verse one, but he chose verse five. There's other verses in the psalm that could have easily helped uh, communicate some of the things that maybe we would understand to be his situation. Verses 12 and 13, I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. That sounds like the situation that Jesus is in. Or verse 22, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. It sounds a lot like him saying that he's forsaken. But Jesus doesn't want to communicate those things right now. That's, that's not how he feels. That's not what he wants to say to his father. And that's not what he wants the crowd around him to hear. It's not what he wants us to hear as, as his last message. Instead, he chooses verse 5. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is the second distinctive change from the original language of the psalm into uh, Jesus's quotation of it. And we lose this in the English, but the original languages, this would have been really obvious. When David makes his prayer in Psalm 31, he speaks of committing in the future tense. He's trusting that someday God will deliver him. When Jesus prays, this, this word that we translate as commit is in the present tense. He is confident that deliverance isn't going to come, but it's, it's here. He can entrust him, himself into the hands of the Father and know that deliverance is here right now. And having said this, he breathes his last, and Jesus dies. There's something that's unique to the crucifixion of Jesus that, that I don't know that we really totally feel the weight of. We don't typically talk about all the gory details of crucifixion. It was a gruesome means that Romans would use to, uh, to execute the worst of their enemies, typically enemies of the state, people who uh, claimed authority against or above Rome, and they wanted to make an example out of them. But crucifixion wasn't a quick death. In fact, as people were hung on the cross, sometimes they were nailed, sometimes they were tied, but they might be up there for days, because usually they didn't die from loss of blood, but because they couldn't breathe. The, The positioning of their bodies wouldn't allow them to get a deep breath. Their lungs couldn't expand and contract, and because of that, they would slowly die. And the purpose of them doing this, the Romans doing this, was so that in case anybody else had an idea that they were going to stand up against Rome, they would be able to hear the cries for days of these people suffering. You're not going to want to do the same thing that guy did. But for Jesus, it's, it's not that experience. He dies after six hours on the cross. 
I think it's a reasonable question to ask why. Why does Jesus die so quickly, and, and how is Jesus killed? John Stott, who's a, a theologian um, from the 20th century in England, he said in his book, Cross of Christ, Judas gave him up to the priests, who gave him up to Pilate, who gave him up to the priests, who gave him up to Pilate, who gave him up to the soldiers, who crucified him. Acts 4.27 makes it clear, all of these parties are involved. Both the Romans and the Jews are active agents in the death of Jesus. And certainly they accelerated it with the beatings and the mockery and the scorning that they did to Jesus as he was led to the cross and on the cross. But there's more to it than that. It's not just that. In John chapter 10, verses 17 to 18, Jesus says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. When Jesus dies, he's not killed against his will. He's not murdered unwillingly. He's not like anyone else who has been crucified. When Jesus dies, Matthew says he yields up his spirit. John says he gives up his spirit. Jesus is the active agent in laying down his life. So he commits his spirit into the Father's hands and lays down his life. And that's, that's Good Friday. We have the death of Jesus. I th- this, is, this is where we pause to try to feel the weight of his disciples. You have to imagine that after this has happened, the, the, we see a little bit of, the, uh, of what happens right after that uh, the centurion makes a remark and the crowd's watching, they, they're sort of just standing at a distance. There's sort of this shock factor of what, what happens now. And after some time passes, you know, certainly they go back to their homes and, and you can ask, I think it'd be reasonable to ask the questions as they go back home. Was, was the intimacy that Jesus said he had with the Father a lie? Was was the trust that he had misplaced. This was the guy that we were following, the, the one who alone had the words of life, and now he's dead. And see, we are 2,000 years in the future, and we, we know the answer to both of these questions, but they didn't at the time. And so there's despair and there's hopelessness. But we know 36 hours, a couple of days later, that Jesus does take his life back up that he comes back out of the tomb, that he ministers to his disciples, then he goes to sit at the right hand of the Father, that he was right in trusting him, that, that the Father did save him. He was right. And that the intimacy that the Father and the Son shared was no lie, that the Father looks at the Son and says, this is my beloved servant with whom I am well pleased. That's a real closeness in that relationship that will last an eternity. So what do we do with this? We've got a Savior who has died on the cross, who's committed himself, committed his spirit to the Father. He's died. He, at this point in our, our timeline in the story, he's not back to life yet, but we know that he is. I think there's just a couple of things we, we walk away from with this. If, if you're here and you're not a Christian, how do you respond to the story? Do you hope that it's just not true, that it's something that we can dismiss as a fairy tale or a fable or just a story that that people tell regularly and that's kind of just the thing? Because if it is, if it's just made up, then we can ignore it. We don't have to think twice about it. We can just let it go as just another fairy tale. I will caution you that there's a reason that we are here right now 
and that people all around the world at three o'clock on Friday come together on Good Friday to worship. It's because this story isn't just a fairy tale, it's true. Jesus was killed by Roman officials. He was laid in a tomb, and then he was raised back to life and ministered. He, he interacted with people around him. He, he went and saw his disciples. He cooked breakfast for his disciples. The man who was dead is alive, and he is now reigning on the throne like we just sang. We have a responsibility to respond to this message, that Christ has called us to trust in him, just as Jesus, the Son, puts his faith in the Father to raise him up, so do we. Through Christ's blood, we come to the Father forgiven of our sins, but only as so far as we put our trust in him, we turn from our own sins and trust in him. And so if you are not a Christian, that's, that's what this message is for. It's to show you the, the all-surpassing worth of Christ and to call you to turn from trusting in yourself or your money or your job or security and other things and to trust only in Christ who can forgive you for your sins and who alone can promise you eternal life. And if you are a Christian, just two things. One, how do you respond to this? What do we do? The obvious answer is that we worship. We look to this son as the object of our worship. We see the picture in Revelation that there's going to be no son because we already have the bright son to worship, that Christ the son is who we come before. So we ought to respond in worship. But we also ought to model our lives after what Christ has done here. We too should be able to say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 1 Peter 4.19 says this, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is what Christ has done. Christ has entrusted his soul into, his, into the Father. He's done it knowing that he'll be raised back to life. Do we do this? Do we follow in his examples? When we suffer, do we suffer for good reasons, not sort of recklessly, but do we suffer doing good, knowing that we are safe in the hands of our Father? We should be able to pray just like Jesus does here. And we should want to because we know from John 10 that no one is able to pluck us out of those hands. The Father's hands are secure. And so for the believer, we can rest in this. We can trust in this and know that there's safety and that there's hope in the, in the hands of the Father. And so as we pray and as we sing and as we go out today from here and we go about our day tomorrow, we don't have to walk around like the disciples did when they didn't know, when they were confused and without hope. We leave with hope, rejoicing that God has forgiven us and he has loved us. He has shown us love most clearly in his son. So we walk out rejoicing. Let's pray.